So you know around here we love a good dear title, especially when it starts with Dear White Women. So that's why we were so excited to sit down with this week's guest, because Kimberly's book title alone had me at Dear White Women. And I mean, for obvious reasons, friends, right? <laughs> Her full book title is Dear White Women, Please Come Home. Hand me your bias and I'll show you our connection. Amazing title, by the way. And once uh, we started reading it, we couldn't put it down. And, you know, I hadn't ever seen a book in this space of sort of DEI anti-racism work written in quite this way. And I loved it. Absolutely. You know, Misasha, as you mentioned this week, we have not only Kimberly Williams, who's the author of the book we'll be talking about, but we also have Debbie Irving, who's the author of Waking Up White, which was one of the first books I read when we started this podcast. And she's a white woman. And so this was also a conversation I was really looking forward to because Debbie Irving is also Kimberly's forward writer and publisher. So it was a great group conversation. And together we unpack why the title, of course, because we have to discuss why Dear White Women, <laughs> we talk about the reactions to the book, cross-racial friendships, and so much more. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. We're your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And just in case it wasn't obvious, we are also the authors of the book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which is available anywhere you buy your books. Would you two please introduce yourselves? Hi, everybody. I'm Kimberly Yolanda Williams. And I'm Debbie Irving. So... I am so excited to be here because, first of all, when we saw the name, Kimberly, of your book, we were like, yes. And, you know, I want to talk about that and about the structure of the book because it's written so differently than, you know, any other anti-racism book that I've seen out there. And I had to read the first letter twice to really understand the concept behind it. And then I loved it. I was like, this is amazing. And as a side note, while there was something in each letter that, you know, spoke to me for different reasons, when I got to the letter where you mentioned home training, mm. I immediately texted Sarah as I think that phrase is on loop in our house because it started with my husband. And then now I find it coming out of my mouth towards my boys. <laughs> like, I know you have home training, so don't you even like fill in the blank there, right? So that part like spoke to my heart. And I realized that that might be a foreign concept to some of our listeners though. So I really want to get into why did you write this book and why did you write it in the format of letters to a missing white woman. Yes. So I wrote it because I was angry. That's the truth. Uh, Debbie and I had known each other for years before I started working on the book. And I, my partner knew that Debbie was having an event locally where we were living in Massachusetts and she surprised me with tickets to this event. And it was for white women and black women to come together and to heal and to connect and to share truths. And it was the last activity of the day that just got me angry. I mean, it got me fired up. I felt like my soul was on fire where a black woman, there was a huge circle. A black woman would come and sit in the center of the circle with a white woman and she would share a truth with that woman. And she would explain to the woman why she hadn't told her before that moment. And then the white woman had the opportunity to respond. And white woman after white woman after white woman, I heard them say, because the black woman might say, I didn't tell you because I didn't think you cared. You know, and they would say, how could I care? I didn't know. I didn't know. And it was just, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. And every time I heard it is like the rage inside me just like was bigger and bigger. And so I was riding home from that event and I was fuming and I got home and I was sitting at our um, 
like at our kitchen island at the computer. And I was just so quiet. When I get angry, I get quiet. Look, I defy the stereotypes. I get quiet. (laughs) And my partner was like, you know, what's going on? I was like, you know what? Those women were lying. They were lying. What do I mean? They don't know. And then I got quiet again. And I said, well, you know what? Maybe they didn't know if in my community growing up, in my family, in my community, as Black people were taught not to tell white people the truth for fear of retaliation. You might be passed over for a promotion. You might be killed, right? You might be ejected from your neighborhood, ostracized, isolated, and so forth. So I said, you know what? Um, And I think I was joking when I said this, but I said it anyways. And I was filled with rage when I said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell white women the truth so they can never again say, I didn't know. I mean, how can you not know? We're on YouTube, TikTok, Snapchat, you know, Instagram. And I said, you know what? I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to do it. And then I said, I think I'm just kidding. But here we are four years later (laughs) and doing this work professionally, right? Like by title, I'm someone who's brought in to do presentations with organizations and with schools. I just came from a school this morning doing a presentation to help folks to bring down barriers between groups, to help folks to connect, to find a sense of belonging, to deepen relationships between colleagues, between student groups, et cetera. And, but I had always felt like a lot of the books that I read from the DEI world were, or DEIB or DEIJ were intellectual. And there's nothing wrong with that. But my mission is to get people deeper into real relationships living and existing and thriving with one another. And we have to do that from a heart place, right? And so I decided because the activity at Debbie's workshop felt intimate, it was painful, but it felt intimate. And so I felt like the letter approach was really intimate. I remember the days of sitting down at a desk and writing a letter and folding it up and putting it in an envelope and putting a stamp on it and waiting to hear from that person. I got your letter today, right? Like, and so the entire production process of putting together, even what the visuals of the mailboxes on the pages in the book would look like, or the stamps was just an intimate process. And I wanted readers to have an intimate journey with me as they move through the book. And that's why that approach, because I didn't want it to feel like a head thing, which white culture demands, right? Everything is up here. I wanted it to feel like a heart thing. And most people have told me that it does feel that way. What a powerful response. And also so aligned with sort of the reason Misasha and I wrote the book too, was like, we saw all these theoretical intellectual pieces out there, which are very, very important, but we also really feel like it's important for people to understand why and how, and and that we're all different. We're going through the world with different experiences. You know, for those of you who obviously can't see the faces we're speaking with, Kimberly is black, Debbie is white. And we have spoken on the show before about interracial friendships and kind of how they're different or can be more challenging than same race friendships. And often, I mean, like you said, sort of take more grace from women of color to explain things to white women. And so Kimberly, what's your take on what makes authentic interracial friendships possible? among women? I would say the number one thing for me, and I'll share with you, my partner sometime last year said to me about a white woman that I consider a friend. She said, I don't know why you consider her a friend, Kim. You know, she will eventually hurt you. She's white. She can't help herself. You know? And I said, but she's not my friend because she can't hurt me or it, right? Like everyone in my life has the power to hurt me, no matter what racial group they belong to. I said, but She's the type of white person that when she does harm me, she's able to own it. I call it OAD, 
she's able to own it. Like that O is for owning it. And the A is to just apologize, apologize and commit to doing better. And then the D is for don't circle back. Don't say, you know, people come back to you with their guilt. Like, oh, remember last week when I did X, Y, and Z? I'm like, no, don't circle back. Like your guilt is your issue, right? <laughs> like, I'm just trying to get my lunch today. Is that okay? Um, so I say that those relationships are possible because there's a level of intimacy. I know I keep talking about this, but there's a level of intimacy that says, I trust you to call me when I've misstepped and you can trust me to own it, apologize and to move on from that. Right. Like, and vice versa. That's why Debbie and I are, I feel like every time we talk and we talk a lot, (laughs) y'all, every time we talk, our relationship just deepens, it deepens and it deepens. And it's not because it's perfect or that whiteness never shows up, whether it's on my part, because guess what? White supremacy lives in me too, or it's on Debbie's part. And But we trust each other to move through that moment of conflict or that hiccup and to end up on the other side of it in a deeper and a more authentic relationship. I appreciate that so much. And for those who are listening, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is that being able to misstep in a, people will hurt you, right? If you have love in your life, there is potential to be hurt no matter what, but those skills of owning it when we make a mistake and apologizing and then not like putting your guilt on somebody else, those are good qualities for human beings to have period, right? Like in any kind of relationship. And so I feel like that's, you know, that humility, that is such an important part of the relationships that we bring to our interactions with other air quote types of people too, right? Like if, but you know, and to flip it to the other side, Debbie, you know, I remember reading your book, as I mentioned earlier on, Waking Up White very early on as Misasha and I started this show. And I love the format with the questions at the end of each chapter, but you having known each other for a while, how did Kimberly's book sit with you when you read it? What, if anything, triggered you and what compelled you to offer Kimberly this platform to help get it published? Well, that can all be answered in one fell swoop because uh, so Kimberly and I ran into each other randomly at a conference and uh, we were laughing because we immediately sat down and we said, let's have lunch together. We sat down and the conference served a first course, air quotes, of a paper plate with lettuce on it, no dressing, no other vegetables. And for some reason, Kimberly and I thought that was hysterical. And we had one of those moments where we kind of started laughing and couldn't stop. And it was in that moment that she said, hey, you know, do you know I'm writing a book? And I said, what? She goes, yeah, it's kind of inspired by that workshop that, you know, you led. And here, I'll read you a letter. It's letters. I'll read you. And she read me the first letter, the one, Natasha, that you had to read twice. She was about 10, 15 words into that letter. And I just felt emotion well up. And I think it was first, you know, hearing Kimberly read these letters, they're wonderful on the page. They're incredible when she speaks them. It was so clear to me that she was coming at the whole thing from a place of vulnerability. And I hadn't seen anybody, any Black woman do that yet. I've had friends do that in their lives, but I'd never seen anyone put their heart on the page like this. I think there was a line, Kimberly, that when you got to, I know you're out there looking for me too. That Even as I say it, I get goosebumps. So I just recognized there was something different in it. That was the very first interaction. Of course, then as publisher, the hours Kimberly and I spent together rereading, reading, tweaking, editing, coming up with all those questions, I fell deeply, deeply in love with the book. And then we tested the book on a bunch of readers. You know, she had a group of readers. I had a group of readers that we sent it off to. And the feedback we got, I could tell the book was going to do the same thing. 
I think, Kimberly, one of the reasons I wanted to say to you in that moment, like, I want to help you get this published and we can use my imprint if we need to, was when I tried to reach out to the publishing world to get Waking Up White published, there was not an agent, there was not a publicist, there was not a publisher who grasped what I was trying to do. They kept saying to me, there's no story there. There has to be a story arc. And I was like, oh, it's a giant story arc. And so I think my book was maybe a little ahead of its time in terms of style and, and content or something, or maybe people just needed to hold it in their hands to get it. And I could tell that Kimberly's book was out of the box enough, like mine was, that I thought that she was going to get have the same hard time I did. So that's why I was like, there's no way we're going to let this book not get into the world. So that's that story. I love that. I just, I mean, I can visualize that, right? The plate of lettuce and you guys just having this moment where this is so ridiculous. And then you speaking those words. And that was really, you know, I mentioned having feelings every letter. And I think it was going on this journey with you through the letters that is so powerful in ways that I can't even articulate because, you know, it just to your what we've been talking about, right? It hits you in your heart. It's not something that you can intellectualize out of. And so, you know, I think about this book and Kimberly, I'm really interested in hearing a little bit about what happens when you hear resistance from white women to this book, because I'm sure the title alone, if it's anything like what we've experienced, everyone feels a way about a title that's called Dear White Women, right? You know, and to some degree in your book, you really put forward this idea that you are a black woman who is speaking up and wants to, you know, build, bring back this sisterhood. And it's something that we don't assume all people of color have to do or should be doing, right? But this is something that you're very forthcoming that you're choosing to do because you see women as a sisterhood that we lost really early on. <clears throat> and that really resonates for us because in the show, we say we hope people, and in particular white women, stop putting being white before being women first. But then in the letters, I also read and really feel how hard this is, right? Because you think you found her and then she does something and you know, you're like, but this can't be you because I know you wouldn't do this. Can you talk a little bit more about the conflict, not only that you show in the letters, but that you've you know, sort of seen now that this book is out in the world? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so talk about conflict. I think when we were, I think we were in the cover design process and my partner and I talked a lot about the fact that we knew, so my partner is biracial, her mom is white. And the very mention we were, I remember we were sitting around the living room and the TV was on and as something about race was mentioned and she was deep into like a novel, a mystery novel on the couch. And it was mentioned and she jumped up off that couch and flew up the stairs and was, you know, and I'm like, wow, the very mention of a color, you know, assigned to a group, a racial category made you run out of a room like that. And so we talked a lot about, will the word white on the cover make white people walk right past the book, right? Like, you know, and so I wrestled a lot with it and I expected a lot of um, resistance. I expected a lot. And I would say I've had probably had more resistance from women of color uh, than I have from white women um, because women of color don't trust white. I don't mean to speak for, we are not a monolith, right? But those of us that grew up 
right? Around the issues of uh, Emmett Till or Ronnie King, or I mean, we could go on and on and on, right? I remember the lady that drowned her kids in a minivan and then said a Black man had done it. I mean, so we could go on and on and on about trust between the Black community and the white community. And so, so many women of color, quite a few of early on, and even as recent as a few days ago, said, listen, mm-mm, no, dear white woman, come home. No, don't come anywhere near me. You know, but white women have I think I've spoken with one white woman that has felt like, oh, no, no, absolutely not. This is racist. You know, we're all the same people. We're one human race, you know, one white woman, but quite a few women of color said, no, don't come. Don't come home because I don't trust you. But then I had another woman. I think Debbie, I shared this with you just yesterday where a friend of our aunt was walking and a white woman coming from the opposite direction called to her and said like, hey, so good to see you and use a name that wasn't her name. And as the woman walked past, you know, she said, why do they think that we all look alike? I, I look nothing like the person that she's referring to. And so she reached out to me and said, I'm going to have to have her read your book because it's brought so much up for me as a black woman. And I'm like, wow. And Debbie, I think you remember the, the moment I panicked and said, oh, my goodness, I think I wrote this for white women, but it actually is touching women of color, too. What do we do? What do we do? And then men read it and were like, it was touching them, too. I'm like, oh, wait, but I didn't write this with a man in mind or even women of color. And so um, it's been very interesting to see which groups have been most resistant to it. And the fact that women of color love it as much as they do. I didn't anticipate that either. (laughs) But it sounds like you're touching on, you know, your experience as a black woman who was feeling that anger and feeling this like, how could you not know? How could you not see? And then appreciating the history, the culture of being told, you know, we don't want to risk telling them what's really going on. Like there's a lot there that I think can be related to in so many different angles, but I love that it is this letter format for one audience that can be felt by so many different groups of people. And it's interesting too, when I heard you say that about, you know, a lot of black women saying, you know, no, please don't come home to me. I'm not interested. I am making it a point of with your book, I have a hard copy of the book and I'm passing it around to the white women I know. And I'm getting their feedback and I'm like, oh, tell me what you think. Tell me what you think. And several of them had said, actually, I find it really interesting because it occurred to me as I picked my head up and reflected on my community after this, I actually have a lot more male black friends and I don't like my female black friends are from like way back, you know, school days, college days, but in adult community, I haven't in where I live now, I haven't made more female black friends and they're just sitting with that. And what does that mean? And how do I analyze that? And, but I also wanted to ask in order for white people and white women in particular to fully participate in friendships outside of their own identity group, right? It does require the things we talked about, self-reflection, the ability to own mistakes, all of this sort of stuff. And obviously all of us here think it's part of being a good human and good for every single one of us to have a broad array of friends. But I think some people, some white people might think, well, I'm too busy or I have it tough enough already. Why should I bother doing this internal reflection and this work and and what's in it for me to go through this, to develop a cross-racial friendship? And so to that, I'd love to ask both of you, maybe starting with Debbie, why do you think it's important for white women to have friendships across racial lines? And then why do we think it's important for women in general? Well, I would say a couple things. One of them is, this comes back to one of the first things, you early things that you said, Sarah was like, well, it's a really great thing to be able to own, apologize and not circle back. Like I call those basic grown-up skills. And I feel that as a white person in a 
you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multiracial society, I was allowed not to have to develop those basic grown-up skills because there was so much protection and insulation. There still is around me every day. And so, you know, I can step on people's toes at work. I can say things that are offensive. I cannot meet the needs of a student. If I'm a teacher, I cannot meet the needs of a patient. If I'm a patient of color, I'm talking about as a white woman not meeting the needs or and or, you know, harming people of color, and I won't be punished for it. There's very little, if any, consequence. And so it's important to have consequences in life. It's important to be held accountable. That's how we make one another better people. And I think if anyone who's in a long-term relationship that gets better and better or deeper over time, you know that phenomenon. The other thing I think is like Kimberly and I have so much chemistry and I think that's outside of our racial identities. We have a lot of different identities. You know, I'm heterosexual. She's queer. I, I grew up with a lot of money. She didn't. I'm white. She's black. She's multilingual. I'm monolingual. We have all these different. She has a disability. I, I'm uh, temporarily able-bodied. So, but just like on a soul to soul level, we completely click. And I feel like when we're able to cross boundaries, we completely blow open the number of people who we can possibly have that deep soul to soul connection with. Because if not, you know, I was stuck with all people who were just clones of me for so many years and I love them. And yet there are all parts of me that weren't being developed, weren't being nurtured because I was really in a narrow little world there. What would you say, Kimberly? I would say that it's just, if we don't have these relationships, we are left to the narratives that have been created about all peoples, whether we realize it or not, we are left to believe. And because we believed, we act upon and negotiate the world with the narratives that we are sold about other people. The only time that we get to fight those narratives or interrogate them or challenge them are when we exist in authentic relationship with one another. It's so interesting to me. I think that Debbie, a couple of weeks ago, or I don't even know how many weeks it's been now, but we were in Charlotte, North Carolina at the White Privilege Conference. And I was signing a book for a man who Debbie said, she already shared that I love learning languages. And so one of the languages that I'm able to navigate fairly well is American Sign Language. And the gentleman that I was signing the book for is deaf. And he asked me and in sign language, why do you speak sign language? Is someone in your family or one of your friends deaf? And I said, no, 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 no. I love learning languages because I love connecting with people who are different than myself. And the shock on his face broke my heart. It was like I was some sort of anomaly to him. He was completely shocked that I go out of my way and use my own money to learn American sign language if I don't have to. And his question, what his question did for me was reveal a narrative that exists about people who are hearing, right? Hearing people do not go out of their way to learn American Sign Language unless they have to, because someone in their family is deaf or because one of their friends is deaf. And that broke my heart. And so by being in relationship with people who are deaf, I'm able to challenge that narrative and I'm able to learn what are the stereotypes about deaf people that I've learned that are absolutely not true? Or what are the things that I've learned that are false, that their lives are so different? And how can I help? How can I get involved? So 
how do you know that there are black people in the world that speak from that were born and raised in this country that speak multiple languages if you've never been in a relationship with one? Right. Because the narrative says that. And this is why people ask me, I get the question a lot. What are you? Debbie, I don't think I told you this. We just had a contractor in the house the other day while I was doing I was having a meeting in Spanish and the contractor asked my niece, who else is in the house with you? Like, who is that? And she says, oh, that's Aunt Kimmy. And he said, what? You know, right. The narrative is black people don't speak more than one language and we barely speak English. Right. Like we're uneducated. And but you don't know by looking at me that I grew up speaking English and Spanish. And so I think the only way that we get to immerse ourselves so that we interrogate and challenge and therefore change the narratives about different groups is to experience being in relationship with those groups. I just want to add a huge one, which is because I think the two I offered were self-serving, that there's also like if I really if we think we're one human family, which is what so many people want to say, then we need to be able to work across lines to form solidarity and add to that as women or non-men, if we can't work across class and race and ability and religion and all the other ways that we get divided, then we can't form you know, a united front, and I am using military language here, to try to challenge the patriarchy and, you know, and break down that difference. So that, I just want to add that into the mix. It makes me curious to hear what you have found out there, because I know that in the work Misasha and I are doing, we often encourage people to find that personal connection because I think it is the truth that a lot of people out there, unless they had a family member who is deaf or hard of hearing, they wouldn't go and learn ASL. And I think similarly, we have heard, you know, there are a lot of white Americans living in predominantly white communities who aren't like, yeah, cool. Let me go learn about the black experience. Right. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not a thing. Mm-hmm. And yet I think we're stuck. We have come to this point where we're like, let's find the personal. And if you don't have a personal connection, let's share stories about people that you might care about and the heart centered things that you were sharing, for example, in your book, Kimberly. But do you think like what other ways have you found? Because the other side of it is I don't think we can make people care about other people. Mm-hmm. But you just hit the head on the nail there. It's find the connection. I had a white man write an email to me, not about my book, (laughs) separate from my book before the book came out. I said, you know, I think the work that you do is racist. And he was specifically referring to forming affinity groups for students of color and white students. And first of all, I love that white people are so against affinity groups unless they're self-selected affinity groups, right? Like it's okay for you to live in an all white neighborhood. It's okay if your kids go to an all white school. It's okay for you to attend an all white worship service on the weekends or whenever you go to your church or place of worship, but don't let somebody put you in a group with white people. Then you have a problem with it, right? And so this man had reached out and said, you know, I think what you're doing is racist. And I said, let's meet. And we hopped on Zoom and and he said, well, let's dive in, you know, and he got right to the point there. And I said, you know, before we dive in, do you mind? I said, I like to begin every meeting with a random fact about myself. Is that okay? He said, oh, sure, sure, sure. And I shared something. I don't remember what I shared, something. Um, And I asked him to share a random fact about himself. And he shared how important the city of Palm Springs was to him and his family. And he shared that this was because his family had to move to Palm Springs to find health care for his mom when she was transitioning or passing away. She was very ill. And I paused him at the end of his story. And I said, I just found affinity with you. I said, and more so than I would find with my own spouse, because you understand through and through what the experience of the loss of a parent feels like. 
And I feel myself getting emotional. I share the story of losing my dad in the book. And I said to him, when November rolls around, which marks the anniversary of my dad's death, when major election, the presidential election rolls around, which my dad passed away the day after President Obama was elected the first time, I feel immense sadness. And you would understand those anniversaries. You would understand what it feels like when Father's Day rolls around. You would understand what the agony of planning a funeral feels like. You would understand all of these things more so than my partner who I live with daily. So you and I would attend a parental loss grieving group and we would find more in common than I would with some of my closest friends. And that is affinity. And by the end of that conversation, y'all, he said to me, he leaned back and he said, man, I'm really questioning my role in your work. And I'm wondering if I can partner with you in your work. We went from I'm racist because I want to group people together based on lived experience (laughs) to how can I help you with your work, Kim? How can I partner with you? And so it's finding that human connection, finding that connection, because we uh, there is very I've not found a human being that I can't find a point of connection with. And so when we find that the human response is real, is that we have to connect on that place of humanity. Right. So it's so true. And this is where I see, you know. I came to this work from the background of being, you know, I probably should have been a psychology major. I wasn't, but I'm a life coach and I'm fascinated by positive psychology and human thriving. And I feel like that is such an important part of all of this work, like creating communities of wellness so that we can all slow down enough to connect with one another, as opposed to generalizing. And I feel like all these forces are interconnected because in order to find that connection with this man, you had to be willing and have the ability to hop on a Zoom call, right? If you were working three jobs and like some people who are just rushing, you can't do that. You have to shortcut and generalize. And so I see that intersection so much more. The more we do this work, the more conversations we have about it. And slowing down is good for all of us, especially nowadays, right? What else haven't we asked that you feel is important, that you both feel is important that we discuss today? I would say the most, the biggest blessing for me in this book, reaching the hands of so many have been the stories that have come out of it. The people that have stopped to tell me sort of written to me on social media to tell me stories. I mean, people are like sending messages in the middle of the night and I'm asking myself like, why are you not sleeping? (laughs) Why are you writing to me in the middle of the night? But the story, if we make time, to listen to someone's story instead of assuming what their story is. The barriers between us have to come down or we are hit with this impasse and we make a decision to either walk away and not grow or to lean in and to grow. And I think that this book, I'll share one of my former colleagues wrote to me while she was moving through the book and said, you asked a question about our friends of color challenging us. And she's a white woman married to a man of color. And she said, none of my friends of color have ever called me on anything that I've done, but my husband does. And it makes me wonder if my friends don't feel comfortable checking me. And why is that? Why have they never? (laughs) So I think that the stories, the beauty of all of the stories that have been shared since the book came out. And I know there are probably millions of stories I haven't gotten to listen to yet or read yet that will come as a result of the book coming out, but share your story 
and make time to listen to the stories of others um, because that's going to deepen our relationships with one another. And that's what this book is about. It's about bringing down the barriers that stop you and me from being in authentic and deep relationship with one another. And I think one of the biggest barriers for many white women, again, we're not a monolith either, and yet there are patterns. And one of the patterns for white women is that we are raised to you know, not rock the boat. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, and which was certainly my case. And so I came out of childhood with zero conflict navigation skills. And so if a black or brown woman who's a colleague or a family member or a friend takes that leap of faith to offer me, hey, you know, are you open to hearing about how what you just said impacted me or however it's I'm given the feedback, I have no skills. It's potentially I've been raised to have no skills. And so I get super defensive. And also I've been raised to be perfect. You know, perfection is a huge part of white culture too. And I've been raised to take care of people. And now you're telling me I harmed somebody? Uh Uh-oh. So it's this confluence of all of my cultural, my home training, which is not what we called it in my white home, but (laughs) clashing. And so my call for white women is what I wish someone had said to me is, you know, it's okay. It's a gift when someone shares their truth with you. It doesn't mean you are a bad person. It doesn't mean any more flawed than the rest of us. It's a chance to grow. It's a chance to knit yourself together. And it's a chance to not just grow the relationship, but grow yourself. And I have had to grow both my emotional resilience and all of these ability to have all kinds of conversations. I've let go of any illusions, delusions about perfection, And all of that's incredibly, um, it gives me a lot of agency and it gives me a real sense of freedom to just, you know, be myself. So in the oddest of ways, this isn't why I set out to be an anti-racist, but I find that I'm thriving in ways I never knew possible just because I've had to, I've had to flex a lot of muscles that I never had to flex before. I love both of those, both of what you, Kimberly, and you, Debbie, shared, because I think there's so much truth and power, right, in understanding some of what we don't know or have not learned. And I think that people, and by people, a lot of times, I mean, white women feel so conflicted and guilty for not having learned that, that it stops the process from moving any further. And so I really appreciate what you both shared. And I hope that this book, you know, provides some tools and those questions, right? If you really sit and think about those questions, and some of the questions are uncomfortable, you know, to really sit and be with those questions. But that's where the change comes, right? That's where that self-reflection, all of that starts to kick in. So for our listeners, where can they find both of you? Where can they find this amazing book and everything else? Since I'm sure they're going to want to read it and share their reflections too, maybe not in the middle of the night, but still hopefully (laughs) share. Yeah. So I would hope that people would reach out and follow me on social media. On Facebook, I'm on Instagram, Kimberly Yolanda Williams. And my name is Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E. So I remember someone saying to me, I can't find you online. I am like, you're probably spelling my name wrong. (laughs) So Kimberly Yolanda Williams, please go to Engaging Across Difference and subscribe to our website. Um, We actually are 
just recently launched an opportunity for people to write their own letter, whether it's a woman of color writing to a white woman or a white woman writing to women of color. We've even had white women who wanted to write to other white women. And those letters are posted on our wall of letters on the website. And so, and you can find the book anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and even the independent bookstores um, can order it for you and have it shipped to the store for you. So so, and I'm Debbie Irving at DebbieIrving.com. Debbie's with a Y, Irving's with an I. I love it. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this was great. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. Great meeting you. You've been listening to the Dear White Women podcast and are the reason we are among the top one and a half percent of podcasts in the world. You rock. Did you love this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to leave a rating and review. And it may seem like a pain, but it really helps. And make sure you're following us so you keep getting the newest episodes each Tuesday. Don't forget for all your non-podcast listener friends to tell them about our new book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which you can buy anywhere you buy books, including Amazon, where we would love your reviews. We're on Instagram and Twitter and are upping the game on our emails. And if you love us, send us an email at hello at dearwhitewomen.com to bring us into your company for a webinar or a workshop. 